September 11th, 2001. It's a day that, as the saying goes, we will never forget, both individually and as a nation. Because individually, those of us who are old enough can all tell you where we were, right? Exactly what we were doing when we found out that a plane had crashed into the North Tower of the Twin Towers building. Because at first, we thought it was a terrible accident, right? It was just a fluke, a coincidence. But 20 minutes later, another plane flew into the South Tower. And that's when it became apparent that it wasn't an accident at all, but that this was a planned attack. And I'll never forget the feeling that I had as I was listening to the radio and the broadcaster made the connection that the date was 911. Someone was sending a message, a threat, and it made my heart sink. And as a country, as a nation, we all felt the ramifications of this terrible day, right? When, a day when almost 3,000 people lost their lives, a day when another 6,000 people were left with some kind of injury. It has left a permanent scar on us as a nation. You see, there are times when we face terrible circumstances, in our lives. There are times when things don't go as planned. There are times when we face difficulties, disaster, even death. And during these times, it forces us to ask some difficult questions. So for instance, when an invisible microscopic enemy shuts down the world as we know it, killing 3.4 million people, infecting countless others, destroying families, depleting our savings account, bankrupting businesses, we have some tough questions, don't we? How could this happen? Why is this happening to me? Where is God in all of this? We have these questions because whether we realize it or not, we are wrestling with the process of mourning our losses. Now, this is something psychologists call the process of grieving. It's what the Bible refers to as a lament. In other words, lament allows us to honestly ask God the hard questions. And this morning, we are starting a brand new series through an often neglected and forgotten book in the Old Testament, the book of Lamentations. So if you haven't already, would you please join me there in your Bible, or your Bible apps, to the book of Lamentations, chapter 1. And while you find your place there, uh, I'm just going to give you a little bit of background information, a little bit of context to help you understand what it is that we're looking at here. Because if you remember, ever since the fall of man in, in the Garden of Eden, God begins to make a series of promises or covenants, right, in order to demonstrate his unending love and his grace and his mercy toward us, toward humanity. And so God called a group of people, an entire nation, for himself through the person of Abraham. And he said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And as my people, 
hey, here's how you are to live. I'm going to give you my word. I'm going to give you the law. And you are to live this way as a demonstration of who I am and your relationship to me. But if you don't, I got to tell you, there's going to be some consequences. Well, God's people rebel against him. <laughs> they fall into all kinds of sin and idolatry. And so eventually God removes his hand of protection and favor over their lives, and they fall into the hands of the Egyptians, where they are enslaved for hundreds of years. However, eventually God hears the cries of his people. He hears their prayers, and it's through Moses that God delivers them from Egyptian slavery to the freedom of the promised land, the land that is flowing with milk and honey. And so it's there, as they're in this land, that God says, okay, listen, I'm your God, you are my people, and as my people, this is how you are to live. I expect you to live according to my law. But if you don't, and once again, there will be some consequences. And we read about what the consequences are in the book of Deuteronomy. This is what God says would happen if they were to abandon the law of God. It says this, Deuteronomy 28, starting in verse 64, And the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other, and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. And among these nations you shall find no respite. There shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot, but the Lord will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. Night and day you shall be in dread and have no assurance of your life. In the morning you'll say, oh, if it only it were evening. And in the evening you'll say, oh, if only it were morning because of the dread that your heart shall feel and the sights that your eyes shall see. And as we study this book of Lamentations, Unfortunately, this is exactly what we see happening. See, God's people had made political alliances with the bordering nations, with Egypt and Edom and Tyre and Sidon, in order to protect themselves from their enemy, from, from the threat of the Babylonians. But God was saying all along, hey, don't turn to these other nations. I want you to turn to me. But instead, they turned away from God and they put their hope in man. And as they did this, they also became very comfortable, very complacent in their sins. And so instead of being holy and set apart from the world, they actually began just to blend in with it. Now, don't get me wrong. They, they, they still came to church, right? They, they came to the temple. They participated in everything that was going on. But at the end of the day, their lives were not terribly different from the pagans all around them. You see, they relied on the routines and the rituals of religion instead of relying on a relationship with God. And now we see the bitter aftermath. It is a terrible day for God's people. It's a time when God allows the Babylonian armies to invade the nation to carry the people of Judah away into exile and actually destroy the temple. So it's like all the promises of God are being undone, right? No longer were they blessed and protected by God. No longer were they even in the promised land anymore in the temple. 
the very place where God's presence was dwelling among them was destroyed. And this happened not just once, but twice in Israel's past. We talked a little bit about Jesus uh, predicting the second time that the temple would be destroyed as we studied the Olivet Discourse together. But there's something interesting that I want you to know. Both times that the temple was destroyed, this devastation, this destruction and death occurred on the ninth day of the month of Av. So Solomon's temple fell in 586 BC on the ninth of Av. And the second time the temple was destroyed, it's also destroyed on the ninth of Av. And what that means is the ninth day of the 11th month. And so while we typically refer to the month and then the day, the Jewish people always refer to the day first and then the month. And so what I'm trying to tell you is that as they recorded these events, these two tragic falls of the temple, they would write 9-11. And I don't say that to stir up conspiracy theories or anything like that, okay? I, I just bring it up to say that these two events were quite literally 9-11 moments in Israel's past. For the Jewish people, the term 9-11 was significant way before September 11th, 2001. Because it doesn't just mean that two towers fell. For them, it means that two temples were destroyed on their 9-11. And it has the same kind of effect on them as a people, both individually and as a nation, where it left a permanent scar behind. So that to this day, on the 9th of Av, every year, the Jewish people will gather together and they will read from God's word and they will read the book of Lamentations as a commemoration, a remembrance of the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. Okay, so that's the history behind the book of Lamentations, but it's also important to note that this is a book of poetry. Uh, and since we're going to spend six weeks studying this together, I think it's important just to bring a few things out. Uh, first, as far as content, this book follows what's called a chiastic structure. Uh, we typically use that with the alphabet going like A, B, C, B, A, okay? Uh, and I brought a slide of this to show you how it works out in, in this book. There's a, chapter one is a focus on the people. Chapter two is a focus on God. Chapter three has Jeremiah's response to all this affliction. And then we circle back around to a focus on God for chapter four. And in chapter five, we end where we began with a focus on the people, and with this chiastic structure, uh, the middle of it, right, the, the point, the, the apex is the main emphasis or the focus of the writings. Uh, the second thing I want to point out is something that isn't noticeable in our English translations, but chapters one through four are all acrostic poems, right? And so that means it follows the alphabet, like apples are good, bad Breath is bad. I don't know. I'm not a poet, but like it goes, you know, letter by letter through the alphabet. And this was actually a common mnemonic device. It was something that was used to, to help the people of God remember the word of God and actually recite God's word. And so uh, chapters one, two, and four all have 22 verses because each one of them corresponds to a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. But 
If you remember, we said that chapter 3 is the apex. It's the pinnacle. It's, it's the point, uh, the emphasis of the entire chiastic structure. And so, instead of having just 22 single verses, it's made up of 22 stanzas. And each stanza is made up of three verses in itself for a total of 66 verses, which makes it a triple acrostic. Oh, how cool is that? Because we've already said that this is a book of poetry. The last thing I want to mention is about the structure as a whole. It's about lament. This book is a, a book of poetry about a lament in a, in a terrible time for God's people. And it's very organized, right? We, it has a chiastic structure featuring multiple acrostic poems, uh, outlining and expressing the pain and affliction of God's people quite literally from A to Z, except for chapter five. The last chapter has no acrostic. It has no formal organization to it at all. It's a mess. And so it, it almost seems to be this artistic expression within the writing of what the nation of Judah is experiencing, a change from the expected to the unexpected, from neat and organized to chaos and disaster. And when these things happen, it is lament that allows us to honestly ask God the hard questions. And within this passage today, we see the poet asking three specific questions uh, that can help us. The first one is this, how could this happen? How could this happen? Let's read this together. Lamentations chapter one, starting in verse one. It says, how lonely the city sits that was full of people. How like a widow she has become, she who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. And so the poet who many scholars believe to be the prophet Jeremiah, dives right into this question, right from the beginning, the very first word of the book. It's the Hebrew word, acha, which is translated how. And it's actually the title of the whole book in the Hebrew canon because it deals with this question, how can this happen? And in describing this great tragedy, in order to express the pain and the sorrow, the poet actually personifies the city, right? He describes the city as a great princess who lived in comfort and safety of the palace with many admirers, but who now has become a widow and a slave, all alone with no friends and no place to call her home. This is the opposite of a Disney story, right? This is not the happily ever after. This is not, you know, rags to riches. It is riches to rags. It is royalty to poverty. It is safety and security to slavery. And so it is perfectly natural to ask the question, how could this happen? Artist William Westmore Stories created a sculpture in an attempt to portray this. It's titled Jerusalem, 
in her desolation. And so it's also a personification of the city of Jerusalem here, right? We see this queen who is sitting among the ruins. She's on her throne, but she's slumped to one side. Her elbow is on the arm of her chair, holding her chin up as if it's the only thing to support it. Her gaze is turned downward in a resolute frown. Obviously, she has endured great suffering, a grief that is too deep for words, maybe even too deep for tears. And so even though that crown still sits on her head, giving her an air of a regal appearance, she is desperately in despair. And you know, the most significant detail can easily be missed here. There's a tiny serpent slithering near that queen's feet. The serpent, of course, represents sin, showing that Jerusalem's desolation was a result of her disobedience to God. And we can all relate to this in some way, but isn't it good to know that the Christian faith isn't about denying the pain and suffering in our life? It isn't about, you know, just sweeping it under the rug and pretending as if it's not there or it hasn't happened. This isn't, hey, don't worry, everything's going to get better for you. Why don't you turn that frown upside down? No, Christianity laments, it grieves. Because it recognizes that things in this world are not as they should be. The the horrors of war and murder and racism and death, famine, economic instability, divorce, miscarriages, abuse, a whole host of other things, all these things should grieve us. It should leave us in tears. We lament them, asking the question how could this happen? But as we continue through this passage, we see another hard question arise right alongside this one, and that is, what did I do to deserve this? What did I do to deserve this? Let's pick this up in verse 4. It says, the road to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival, and her gates are desolate. Her priests groan, her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away captives before the foe. From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and her wandering all the precious things that were hers from the days of old when her people fell into the hand of the foe and there was none to help her. Her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. Jerusalem sinned grievously, therefore she became filthy. All who honored her despise her for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future and therefore her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. So we're moving from a general question to a a more specific personal question here, because as the poet expresses the desolation and the destruction of the city, we see it's not just deep, it is wide. It is widespread. He says everything is desolate in verse 4. Her enemies have now become victorious in verse 5, that her glory has been lost in verse 6. The sense of these verses 
is that of a city that has been stripped bare because she has been betrayed by all the surrounding nations who she trusted, who she put her faith in as the Babylonian armies pillaged, looted, raped, and desecrated every holy and precious thing within the city. And so as onlookers who are invited into this by reading about this horrible tragedy, we are forced to ask the question, why? What did she do to deserve this? Verses 5 and 8 give us the answer. The destruction and shame that fell upon Jerusalem was a result of the magnitude of her transgressions, verse 5, and because Jerusalem sinned grievously, in verse 8. And so it's because of Jerusalem's idolatry, because of her spiritual adultery, that she was now facing such terrible consequences. But remember, While Jerusalem is personified as a woman here, this is not describing the sins of one person. This is describing the sins of many people, of an entire nation that has just been heaping up divine judgment against God, rebelling against God for years until finally it reaches the point where God says, enough is enough. Lamentations is an example of what happens when God says, look, I love you enough to say, you can't do this anymore. And every parent understands this, right? We get this. There are times when you have to correct and discipline your child. And we don't enjoy doing it, right? It doesn't give us pleasure to discipline our children, but we have to. Why? Because they're wicked little sinners. (laughs) (laughs) And because we love them, right? I mean... That's what's happening here. God is allowing them to feel the consequences of their sin. And under the weight of all of it, it forces them to ask, have I actually done anything to bring this on myself? Have I done something to actually deserve this? You know, the old spiritual writers used to call times like these a dark night of the soul. These times when God seems to pull back to, to remove his presence and his provision from our lives in order to allow us to actually experience what that feels like. But these dark nights are meant to do two things. First, they're meant to develop a spiritual hunger and thirst inside of us, which draws us closer to God. But then secondly, in coming near to him, it should also then reveal something about ourselves and our own sinfulness so that ultimately we can grow in maturity and relationship to the Lord. And so this is actually a very good question for us to ask as we lament the consequences of sin. And then the last thing we see the poet ask is another hard question. God, do you see? God, do you see? Look at this with me. The, the last half part of verse 9 says, O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary. Those whom you forbade to enter your congregation, all her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see for I am despised. You see, up until now, this whole thing has been narrated by the poet. 
But all of a sudden, right here, the city, the woman breaks in and she cannot contain it. She speaks for herself, crying out, behold my affliction. And then again in verse 11, look, oh Lord, and see. She cries out to God for him not to turn away, but to see her pain and suffering. And so should we. You know, the good news of the gospel is that when we lament like this, when we lament our sin and our brokenness and our shame and despair, God does not look away. In fact, it's just the opposite. He has seen our desperate condition. He cares so deeply for us that he sent his son to the cross. See, Jesus, the king, left his glory and lived in poverty and affliction among us. And just like the city, the woman in this poem, Jesus is betrayed by those who he trusted most. He is gloated over by his enemies as he is mocked and ridiculed. He too was led away as a captive by the Roman government and stripped of his clothing, stripped bare and humiliated in his nakedness before he was crucified where he was treated as a rebellious criminal even though he was completely innocent. And so when we look to the cross, we should lament, asking, how can this happen? Because we know that Jesus was the sinless son of God. We lament, asking, what did he do to deserve this? Knowing that it was because of our sins that we are the ones that deserve the wrath of God on the cross. We lament asking God, do you see? Realizing that because Jesus took our sins on his shoulders, that the father turned his face away from his only son while Jesus hung on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, God does not look away from you in your sin today because he already looked away from Christ on the cross. And that leads us to hope. To hope not in man or in ourselves, but in Christ, in Christ alone, because we are no longer defined by our sin, but by our Savior. And we know that Jesus died and rose again in order to renew and restore all things. So there will come a day, and we long for it, a day when we don't ever have to worry about COVID-19 or sickness or sin or death ever again. We long for that day, but until that day comes, as God's people, we will have to learn to lament and to do it well because it's lament that allows us to honestly ask God the hard questions as we do it, as we learn to do this. It just tunes our heart to be able to hear the beautiful grace of God given to us through Christ Jesus.